Hello, everybody. Uh, it is October the 18th, 2023, uh, a Wednesday, as always, or as usual. I'm talking to you from San Francisco in California, once known as Paradise. Now something else. We did a show on Paradise a couple of years ago uh, with a journalist, Lizzie Johnson, on California's deadly campfire up in, appropriately enough, Paradise. And her book was called Paradise, One Town Struggled to Survive an American Wildfire. The town got burnt to the ground and the New York Times uh, headlined its review as Paradise Being Lost. For people listening, the book Paradise came in uh, with a, a, a dramatic orange cover of a very dramatic orange fire. We're talking fire again today, and oddly enough, uh, the picture on the front of this book is similarly orange, similarly dramatic, similarly full of smoke. Uh, the book is called Ignition, Lighting Fires in a Burning World. Uh, but interestingly enough, uh, I'm not sure it's about paradise being lost. In a sense, it's perhaps about paradise being found. The author is M.R. O'Connor, one of America's leading and most innovative science writers. And she is joining us from Western Mass today where she's doing a writing retreat. Um, Maura, is the book On Fire, your new book, Ignition, is it in an odd way about rather than paradise being lost, paradise being found, or at least you finding a kind of paradise that most people wouldn't have expected. Yeah, that's a really of, of framing it. I haven't actually thought about it that way, but the book is about a process that I went through of trying to understand the roots of our wildfire crisis in North America and discovering a group of people um, spread out across the country whose life work is um, trying to address the crisis through um, using fire as a land management tool. And um, one of my goals with the book was to try and capture um, the spirit of that community of people who are dedicated to this work. And um, it was personally very inspiring. And some of the experiences that I had uh, working on these crews um, did feel like something approaching paradise. You know, a group of people who are extremely committed to um, solving uh, problems and keeping a kind of knowledge about fire alive. Um, and in a sense, um, building community together and, and working together um, despite their varied backgrounds. And uh, yeah, it was, it was quite inspiring. Yeah, knowledge of fire, keeping a knowledge of fire alive rather than putting it out. The metaphor of fire, of course, is rich. Um, I'm not sure how much history you did in terms of broader apocalypses, but throughout history, it seems to me as the apocalypse has always been represented by fire. Of course, hell is supposed to be some fiery place. Is, is there some truth to that? Have we always, we at least in the West, in our monotheistic West, have we associated the apocalypse with fire? I think fire in almost every culture is just laden with um, sort of power and symbolism. And, um, but 
it's true in the West. I think, you know, you think about Dante's Inferno and um, there's this sort of the power of, of ability to take life away. And that is a theme and a thread in our own Western, you know, cultural history. Um, but it's not the only, you know, um, way of thinking and relating to fire. And in the book, what I tried to do is um, trace some of these other threads, these other ways of thinking about fire and its its powers. And one of the things that I discovered, which was completely new to me, is this idea of fire as a, a life-giving and a, a regenerating force in nature. And the ways that people um, harnessed that life-giving force um, in order to serve their own cultural goals, um, whether it was hunting or harvesting or, um, you know, tool making and such. And uh, there's this incredibly rich history of, um, of people, not just in North America, but around the world in Australia um, in particular, who uh, for thousands of years were using fire in these very... Um, intentional ways that also happen to benefit, um, you know, plants and animals in those uh, landscapes and ecosystems. So there certainly is this, uh, you know, powerful symbolism of fire. And I think as a journalist, you know, now I'm even more sensitive to the ways that fire has become symbolic of a, you know, climate apocalypse. And we sort of can just mention wildfires as a stand-in for how terrible things have have become and where you know the future may hold um and i'm not denying that uh in the book at all but i am trying to expand um our understanding of what fire is capable of and how humans have related to it throughout our history is fire technology often it's represented as technology but of course it's also a force of nature it's not as i mean on the one hand it just happens on the other hand, we think of inventing it. How, how do you think of fire? Yeah, well, it's interesting. It's Fire um, is, I think, the only element that humans uh, in our evolutionary history managed to uh, figure out how to control. Um, and so it is a naturally occurring phenomenon. Um, you know, fire is unique to the Earth system. We're the only planet that we know of in the universe that has fire. It's the result of, you know, the levels of oxygen in our atmosphere and um, the vegetal life that, you know, was created on Earth. And, and so it, there's this amazing um, uniqueness of fire to our Earth system. And yet humans were able to use fire for their own ends. And so, you know, that is quite unique. Um, we, we didn't, we weren't able to do the same thing with hurricanes, say, or, or, or rain right. even. But bustle, um, bustle these things up, essentially. Right. Um, but, but I think there has been this shift and um, one of, you know, an incredible person that I was able to interview for the book is the historian Steve Stephen Pine, who has spent uh, decades uh, compiling, you know, a global history of fire. And, and he makes a, a really salient point, I think, that 
Um, there's been a transition uh, over the last 100 plus years, you could say, with the Industrial Revolution of increasingly taking fire out of the landscape and putting it into boxes, um, our combustion engines and, you know, um, mm. and putting it into boxes. And, and that is a technology. Um, so strangely, even though fire on the landscape is not something that many of us are accustomed to seeing and actually have been taught to fear, um, combustion is is all around us. It's our daily lives are are very much dependent and intricately interwoven with this process of of combustion. Yeah, it's an alternative. I wonder if you uh, considered also calling the book ignition. It's a great title, but you could have also called it combustion. Combustion. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It could have been. <laughs> well, that'll be volume two. We're talking with M.R. O'Connor, as I said, one of America's most innovative and intellectually brave science journalists. Uh, she has a new book out, Ignition, Lighting Fires in a Burning World. Um, Maura, on your website, you have a quote from uh, the Soccer War, 1969, the great uh, Polish journalist uh, Kapuscinski. Uh, you quote, and who was I, a reporter? Why was I traveling to look to walk around, to ask, to listen, to sniff, to think, to write. How do you ask and listen and sniff and think and write about fire? What did you do for this book? It was quite a process. I knew that um, in order to describe the work that fire practitioners today do, I, I needed to see it up close. Um, but then the question became how to get close. And um, I sort of went down a, a rabbit hole um, in which it became increasingly evident that the best way to do it was to get um, wildland firefighter qualifications, which are often required of people participating in um, prescribed or controlled burns. So I, I basically did the minimum training in order to get on the fire line and be able to observe. Um, but it's pretty difficult to show up on these crews and do nothing. Um, someone is inevitably going to give you a tool. Um, and uh, it turned out that I really enjoyed the work and was sort of fascinated by the strategies and practices of both firefighting and lighting fire. So the training itself and um, becoming called a student of fire, trying to learn about fire behavior, about fuels, um, about how to do this, this type of work um, became one of my obsessions the last few years. And um, I think it did enable me to write about the sights and smells and experiences of being close to fire in a way that, you know, I, I just couldn't possibly have done um, without going through that training. So hopefully, you know, readers also get a sense of that. Um, and, you know, surprisingly, there were many um, instances during my reporting for this book where you're just struck by the beauty of these controlled burns and they're serving an ecological benefit. So, um, when I started out was completely new to me and I had no idea that's where I would have, you know, ended up uh, with these, with these qualifications and, and wanting to continue to do it, which I intend, I intend to do. 
Yeah, there's something awesome about, and I mean that in a literal sense, not in the way we use the word awesome, certainly in California these days. There's something awesome about looking at fire. It's no surprise that it's it's bound up all too often with religions, particularly indigenous religions. I know with the book, you, you deal with some of the issues of the way in which uh, the indigenous peoples of North America might have viewed fire differently and had a different attitude, different philosophy of fire. What did you discover? Yeah, I think um, there are many um, tribal nations in North America that would describe themselves as, you know, a fire, um, a, a culturally fire dependent culture. Um, many of their traditions and um, ways of living were dependent on using fire as a tool. And um, there's just a really fascinating history of the process by which um, fire became an enemy. Um, it's very much tied into the creation and history of um, the conservation movement, as well as the Forest Service and a sort of um, enlightened quote unquote perspective on uh, our natural resources, which was to manage them as a, a sort of economic asset. and. Um, you know, for the last hundred years plus, uh, our policy as a country has mainly been to suppress fires in order to protect both um, timber as a natural resource, as an asset, and um, communities, you know, adjacent to those to those places. Um, but that had enormous ramifications, not only ecologically, but also culturally. So I tried as a reporter to go to a handful of places where people are really trying to bring um, these traditions back and to sort of force the issue. For a long time, uh, people were fined, imprisoned, penalized, um, incastigated for you know these fire lighting traditions. And there's an effort to shift the to point out that one of the reasons why we are dealing with such a, a massive wildfire crisis, especially out west, is that we have neglected some of these land management strategies. Um, and as a result, our forests are extremely dense, uh, overcrowded, drought stricken, um, pest ridden. Uh, and as it turns out, a lot of the fire science, you know, supports uh, fire as this land management tool. So um, it's a powerful uh, example of the ways that indigenous knowledge can um, really illuminate and help us understand why we're in the situation that we are in and also the way out. Um, so I was really grateful to be able to spend time with people in those communities and, and learn from them. Is modern science beginning to recognize the modern science of fire and fire management um, and, and, and addressing the, the challenges and opportunities of fire? Is it beginning to recognize, do you think, the value of, of that indigenous wisdom? Yeah, I think there's been um, a a great amount of effort in the last five to 10 years to create relationships and bridges between the scientific um, fire science community and indigenous communities. And, um, you know, I think also it's a one 
highlight in the way that the news media um, has has been covering the topic is that they've actually been doing some excellent coverage of um, these of the indigenous effort to bring back fire uh, traditions and knowledge. Um, but the science community actually has a, a longer history than just say the last decade of of um, studying fire as an ecological process and its benefits, as well as a land management tool. You can go back to the 1920s and find examples of foresters who were looking to Native American communities and seeing what they were doing and why and arguing that um, this policy of suppression was, was misguided, that if you didn't have, um, you know, semi-frequent cooler fires burning that would remove fuel from the forest um, at you know certain intervals you were going to create the conditions for um, massive blow-ups and that debate in the 1920s sort of ended with the suppression folks really winning out um, and then again in the 60s there was another effort to kind of ignite this fire revolution in north america and it wasn't unsuccessful but um, I think that then the Reagan years during the 80s created conditions where suppression became a more dominant, um, you know, response to wildfires and such. And so there's been waves of, of interest in this topic and efforts to um, resurrect fire on the landscape. Um, not all of them were successful, but I think what's happening now is quite significant. Um, there seems to be a lot more momentum, a lot more attention being paid uh, to fire science. And part of that is because, you know, we're seeing such massive um, wildfires each fire season and the, and the cost of that to communities like Paradise, um, the cost to wildland firefighters, the cost to indigenous tribal communities, um, the cost to New Yorkers who are being washed in, you no, know, I mean, it, it crosses it. You don't have to even be near the fire to have the impact. Exactly. We, are, we are talking with um, M.R. O'Connor, author of Ignition. It's out this week. Lighting fires in a burning world. Uh, I want to thank our sponsor, uh, Liberties, a quarterly journal of culture and politics. Excellent new publication. In fact, Mora. O'Connor will get uh, a free annual subscription as a guest on the show. Going to run a short ad for Liberties, and then we'll be back with Maura to talk more ignition fires and how indeed, and at least in her view, fires can be a lot of fun. Beyond the news, the noise, there is nuance, insight. Liberties is not just a journal of ideas. It's a meteor of intelligent substance. It's the place to be for engaged citizens. Politics, opinion, substance. Liberties is a triumph for freedom of thought, a quarterly of urgency, of cultural exploration, of intellectual delight, of immaculate prose. It's invaluable. Subscribe now or find Liberties at your favorite bookseller. And you can subscribe to Liberties at libertiesjournal.com. We are speaking with uh, Maura O'Connor, who is known as M.R. O'Connor. She has a new book out, Ignition, Lighting Fires in a Burning World. Uh, Maura, I mentioned earlier that uh, just before the break that one of the things you discovered in the book is fires. This is a rather unholy observation. Fires can actually be a lot of fun. What's fun about fires? Yeah, I think um, what I'm mostly referring to there is uh, the experience of working on a crew of, of people 
um, on what are known as usually like prescribed fires or controlled fires. And there's a term that's um, being used more and more today to try and um, expand our understanding um, and our notion of possibility around fire, uh, good fire. So this idea that some fires are, are necessary ecological processes that benefit the health of, of fire adapted landscapes and that people have played a role in igniting those fires. There's a history of that. And by doing that today, um, you know, we're igniting good fires and working on crews of people who are dedicated to that idea um, is a lot of fun. You get to work with um, trucks and drip torches and it's really hard, it's dirty, uh, it's exhausting and it's like some of the most fun I've ever had. I think mainly because people are um, are just so uh, kind of happy to, to do this work. It's very fulfilling, I think, to do something that is that purpose driven in a group and to have to come together and work together and speak the same language and achieve the goal together is just really satisfying in a way that, um, you know, as a writer who who travels for work, but ultimately spends a lot of time alone behind desk. <laughs> you know, it was it was a lot of fun. There's a great sense of camaraderie and uh, yeah, good spirit. Maura, what did you learn in, in in researching this book about addressing global warming and and our crisis of the environment um, in terms of fire? What what insights did you get that perhaps wouldn't have been obvious that might surprise that surprised you and might surprise some of our listeners and your readers? Yeah, I think there's no question that the science is showing that um, you know increasing global warming is really um, exacerbating the wildfire crisis. So it's creating more um, conditions of drought. Um, it's expanding the number of days each year where these really dangerous wildfires can explode because of windy, dry um, conditions. But I think there's an aspect of the crisis that is now slightly getting overlooked, which is that even if we didn't have a climate uh, crisis on our hands, we would still have this wildfire crisis simply because our forests have been um, overcrowded now for, for decades and decades. Um, and part of that is this fire suppression policy where we have not allowed any fires um, mainly to, you know, to burn. Um, so there's an interesting way in which um, global warming is contributing to the problem and is actually making it harder to, to deal with the problem. But that also, this is a, a policy issue and something that predates our understanding of, of global warming. And so I want to highlight that because I think it points to um, the fact that there are many available solutions to us to deal with the wildfire crisis. Um, we know the science. Uh, we know how to better protect communities. Um, we know how to manage our forests. Um, and that doesn't just uh, mean, uh, you know, ending the use of fossil fuels. Those solutions can be implemented uh, today, tomorrow, and the next day. So I think um, 
what I was surprised by is that maybe some the fact that these solutions are known and available to us and don't depend on um, massive societal uh, restructuring away from fossil fuels was actually sort of hopeful to me. And um, I hope that readers also, you know, glean that from, from this book. And um, it's not meant to be dismissing the gravity of the situation we're facing, but just really highlighting that we do have these solutions at our fingertips. Fire is often thought of as an end, as a destroyer of history, uh, as a leveler. But you note in the book and in your work that it's also a, a way of understanding history, of, 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 of creating history. Explain what you mean by that. I think uh, one of my favorite characters that I was able to write about in the book is the anthropologist Omer Stewart. And um, uh, he passed away in the early 90s, but he had spent um, decades uh, interviewing people in North America, um, Native American people about the um, what the landscape used to look like and how it got that way. And he... Um, it wasn't published until after his death, but he had a 900 page manuscript that detailed all of the historical uh, evidence for um, Native American uh, influence management, intentional shaping of the landscape from prairies to, um, to forests. And um, it's so eye-opening to read Stewart's work because I think what I began to understand is that um, we have this sense of history as, um, you know, still sort of shaped by a narrative of European settlers coming to the North American continent, which was relatively pure and untouched. Now, when you read Stewart's work, you get this fuller sense of, of our history, which is that um, there really wasn't very many parts of North America that were untouched. And in fact, part of the bounty and part of the beauty and um, part of the exceptionalism of this continent was the fact that humans had been intentionally managing it for so long. Um, and so, it, you know, that history of fire, I think I certainly wasn't taught it. I don't think many people are, um, but it really can change your notion of, of this place we live in and why things look the way they do. And also the fact that um, from a certain perspective, we've sort of been remiss in our obligations to, to the land. This relationship between people, fire, and the land has um, not been uh, fulfilled in a way. And so there's this opportunity now to really um, use fire as this powerful tool to help the land be, yeah, to be healthy and resilient, especially in the face of, of climate change. Maura, yesterday I did a show with Richard Rhodes, one of America's leading biographers. He just has a paperback of his uh, biography, a very acclaimed biography of E.O. Wilson, the Ant-Man, uh, perhaps the most influential of all American biologists. How, how do you think, and, and we've done shows about technology that will, might allow us, theoretically at least, to be able to talk to other species, how do you think the ants and the other species, the mammals, think of fire differently from us? Are they also in awe of it? You always, always see these pictures. I remember there was once a famous photo of 
I think it may have been rabbits escaping a major forest fire. Do, do animals think of fire, do you think, and deal with fire differently from humans? Yeah, I think so. And I think it's important to make a distinction between a sort of, you know, mega fire that breaks out in August under the worst conditions possible and burns at really severe high intensity over hundreds of thousands of acres, which is um, unquestionably devastating for, um, you know, or can be for, for certain plant species and animal species. So that type of fire, I almost think as not even a natural disaster. It's kind of a man-made disaster in part because of these policies that we've had for so long. Um, the other type of fire that you could point to, which is quite different from what I just described, is in fire-adapted uh, landscapes um, where fire is this regenerating force um, that often leads to a proliferation of sort of new growth um, and creates diversity um, between plant species. So maybe you have new meadow opened up um, next to, uh, you know, a, a thinned forest where there's different aged trees, that kind of um, diversity that can be created by fire is really um, can be quite beneficial to to species to deer. There's woodpeckers that you know require um, fire burned snags or you know tree stumps in order to um, feed and and procreate. Uh, so you know there's many many examples in in um, in nature of animals that thrive. Uh, post-fire. And again, I, I think that that's just kind of news to most people. It, it, it was to me. I think uh, one of the estimates is that in North America, 80% um, of the landscapes have some level of fire adaptation. So it doesn't mean that they necessarily all burn every few years. Some burn every 50 years. So that that burning serves a purpose and that that actually benefits um, Maura, uh, finally, you use the word regenerative force or regenerating force. The, the word regenerate has been a persistent theme on this show. Many people oh, use the word. Um, might that be a summary of fire? Uh, not not of either par uh, of, of heaven or a hell, but one of regeneration? Yeah, I think that's fantastic. I wish I had phrased it that way in the book, perhaps. I, I think I want and hope that people can extend their thinking around fire into new possibilities. And I think that one of the aspects of fire is that it does, um, it has this capacity to, to open up possibilities and allow for the new. Um, so as a metaphor for thinking about the future, I think it's, I think it's wonderful. Um, also, I wanna point out that there are just many different types of fire. So it's not to say that fire can't be destructive or damaging and it's not having um, massively, you know, painful consequences for, for communities and, 
um, ecological systems today, but just that there's other types. And um, one of the things I think we need to consider as a, a society and a culture is um, things are going to burn uh, whether we want them to or not. I think the last hundred years of history has proven that. Um, and so we really need to choose what kinds of fire we live with and what types we want. And um, it's not going to be possible to have a hundred percent smoke-free, fire-free future, but that there is this possibility of, of um, not living with with mega fires that are going to you know irrevocably transform our landscapes into something less productive and less resilient um so yeah the book hopefully does move people beyond a certain doomsday uh narrative around fire and opens up some new ideas and, and ways of thinking about this element 